the Modern Life Podcast. We are covering the most whispery movie ever, Dune. All right, kids. Welcome back. You can find us at modernlifepodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at modernlifepod and also email us at modernlifepod at gmail.com. I have Jason back with me from the Future Cities podcast. I'll have everything linked below so you can find him over there. Thanks so much for listening and I'll give it over to Princess Arulin from Dune. Spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. All right, we're back. Welcome back, Jason. So good to have you back at Modern Life Podcast. How are you doing? Uh, doing great, surviving uh, as best as one can. I got to hit the trails the other day, uh, which is really the the thing that keeps me sane, even in normal times. So oh, as long those as I can are, keep doing that, I'm probably fine. Those are closed for us. Uh, yeah, so I definitely illegally oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> hiked. Um <laughs> So, yes, they are closed, but also, yes, there is no one uh, enforcing the fact that these trails are supposed to be closed. So, oh, you interesting. know, it works out. All right. How are you doing? How's the modern life pod? It's doing good. We're doing good. Everything's Driving. on track. Yes. So what is your modern thought for us today? I guess I should have run this by you previously, but you haven't had anyone talk about uh, Tiger King on your show uh, yet, correct? No, and I see all the memes online, so I feel like I've watched it. I wasn't sure if it was a documentary or like a made-up show. Yeah. So, I mean, I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, It... Like, I also avoided it. I really don't like Netflix shows in general. Um, I just don't... There's, like, been nothing that they've produced that has really inspired me. But this one has really hooked me. Um, it is a documentary. And it is just kind of about people who work in the tiger breeding and tiger rescue. I mean, like, it is interesting enough that they have a brief appearance by this one fellow tiger owner... Uh, who it turns out is probably the inspiration for the character that Scarface is based off of, a Tony Montana. And it's incredible because of all the people on this show, he is probably the most believable and trustworthy person uh, in the entire like series. It's just incredible. Like they talk to him briefly and like he kind of goes over <laughs> his history. He is a Cuban immigrant. Uh, he was involved with the drug trade. He was also involved with the killing and dismemberment of a police officer. And he comes off as actually like the most chill and normal person oh of the God. bunch. It's incredible. <laughs> Wait, how is it? How is this legal? The tiger breeding thing? I mean, these are all valid questions. Uh, I, I mean, so one of them is in Oklahoma. So I don't know if it's like state laws that regulates the legality of breeding certain animals and certain, you know, other animals. So cattle breeding is, of course, probably legal in all states, but, you know, exotic animal breeding is maybe a bigger problem. I think 
exotic animal trading, you know, like an imported exotic animal is probably illegal in all states, but we have a bunch that are already here. And this stuff was like pretty legal up through what seems like the the early, at least the mid 90s uh, was pretty legal or at least like very poorly regulated. Pretty much everyone in this documentary got started on it back in like the 90s. How do they uh, how do they afford it? Well, for a lot of people, it is they don't. They basically just like go into massive amounts of debt. But they do spend a lot of time going over people's strategies to actually make this profitable. Because, I mean, even just the feed alone, I forget like how many millions of dollars you have to spend every year feeding these tigers. And like one of these guys, Joe Exotic, who probably who most of the memes are, are based on, has 227 tigers on his uh, property. And that's what? not even including all of the other animals that he has, like wolves, uh, you know, several types of primates as well. And like he's in Oklahoma, so it's not like he's getting massive amounts of tourism like you would if you were in a state like, I don't know, somewhere closer to New York City or in California, close to Los Angeles or something. Uh, so it's really amazing that he's scraping by it all with this. But like they, there's good portions of the show where they're talking about how he basically dumpster dives Walmart for uh, all the deli meats that get thrown out and feeds his tiger with those. So there's like a scene where they just dump out all this package of lunch meat and you get the idea that, oh, you're feeding these tigers like Oscar Mayer bologna, uh, at least to some extent in their diet. It's incredible. Oh, God. Um, and then otherwise, I mean, they're literally like signing loans and uh, their elderly parents' names and the elderly parents are just like, I didn't understand. They, You know, my son put a piece of paper in front of me, so I signed it. Every one of them is just like, so different even their parents are so different like i couldn't get my parents to sign anything without them like reading it thoroughly because they inherently don't trust me the idea that like well my son the guy who got involved with tiger breeding is probably very trustworthy and probably <laughs> you know knows what he's doing let me just sign this piece of paper that is putting my name on like a mortgage it, it's insane oh my god uh, I, I can't recommend it enough uh, i mean you'd think that the tigers would be the like main show and a, a tiger breeding documentary, but they are far from it. And again, it's like incredible enough that like Tony Montana is a minor character uh, <laughs> and not even like the most interesting one there. And also probably the most honest character uh, that they show uh, of the bunch. It's it's just incredible. So mine is I was trying to come up with something that's not Corona related and I yes. I didn't. I'm sorry, but I find it very interesting Seeing online, because I follow a lot of um, book accounts on Instagram, I find it really interesting that people are reading things that are very predictable. And I think when a time when you're dealing with this much stress and uncertainty, that is reflected in the media we consume. So I see a lot more people reading romance, because you're guaranteed that happy end. And I see a lot okay. of people reading um, cozies. So cozies are the detective mysteries like the golden yeah. age of detective stories like agatha christie stuff back between the wars that became really popular because you kind of wanted to deal with that trauma of like all the things that you just went through even if you're back home you know as a country yeah there's murder but you don't really ever see it on the page it's about these big estates and 
the detective sure. always, you know, he always solves the mystery by the end. So it's predictable and you always get what you paid for kind of. So I just find that so interesting that people are going back to these things to kind of self-soothe, I guess. Sure. It's very relatable here. We're talking about a, a book that probably a lot of people read during their adolescence. My, I, I actually missed it during my adolescence. I read it in my mid-20s uh, for the first part. But it is kind of just a, a sci-fi story that is like a very boyish fantasy about like what you can be in a lot of ways. And we can get into the other stuff soon. But it, it is interesting, though, that people are going back to those sorts of genres. Yeah. But yeah, uh, no, that's a perfect transition. We can get started on the book. Hey, yeah, perfect. <laughs> so we're talking about Dune by Frank Herbert. The book came out in 1965, and the movie by David Lynch came out in 1984. So this was my first time reading this book. And I was actually looking online for like a nice edition so I could have something, you know, that looks nice in my bookshelf. And I was looking at first editions a first edition of this book cost $10,000. Oh my god. That's not actually a lot. Um, if you compare that to something like Anne of Green Gables, first editions will go for like in the $30,000 range. But it is the most expensive first edition in the sci-fi genre, which I did uh, not know. So That's surprising. I'm trying to think of like some of the other classic sci-fi books that... I mean, like Ender's Game, probably it's not as good as this, but I feel no. like it's just as big of a name potentially. Right. You know, not being alive during that era, I don't know how much of a phenomenon Dune was at the time, but it certainly is still kind of reverberating. I mean, clearly they're making a movie of it, um, mm -hmm. or at least we're planning on releasing a movie later this year of it. So let's get into kind of explaining what goes on in this book. I think we have a lot of feuding noble families of course the desert planet dune this is really more of like a philosophical but also ecological kind of sci-fi story i would say yeah i would agree um so we have the atreides family living on a very lush planet that's very green with a lot of water they then get sent to supervise spice production on the planet dune Spice is something that people need to travel through time. I'm not quite sure how it works. Travel through space. Uh, space and time. Yes. It allows you to fold space, basically, uh, as I think the, the way they explain it. But yeah, they get kind of stranded on this planet. Immediately stuff goes down. The family gets attacked. The mom and the son, so the heir, Paul Atreides, escape um, and find kind of the natives of Dune. And he rebuilds his army to take revenge and become the religious messiah of Dune. <laughs> what else happens in this story? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it covers a lot of ground. Um, yeah, I mean, rebuild his army and then also uh, recruits uh, a small army of uh, giant sandworms, as one does when you're vacationing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it in terms of the, the broad plot involved in this book. You did describe it as like ecologically, or ecologically focused and philosophically focused. Those are really cool elements to it. I think this book was written, or at least the, the original serialization of this book 
was written, I believe, a couple of years after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I don't know so what that is. Oh, it is like the quintessential publication about ecological change and man's effect on the natural world. So Rachel Carson was originally inspired by the effects of basically spraying pesticides across large swaths of middle America Mm. and farmlands and the devastation that it has on the insect population. So Silent Spring refers to the fact that they used to just uh, spray so many pesticides over the land that you wouldn't hear bugs anymore. And that was a real striking thing for her. And she wrote this really graphic sort of description of the the huge effect that pesticides and other things that um, humans were doing to the land were having on the natural world. And it's cited, you know, as kind of like a a major game changer or like um, paradigm change in the way that uh, humans think about their relationship to nature, or at least more specifically, white Americans thinking about their relationship to nature in America. So, you know, this is a much more thin population than I think people realize. But uh, it's still like an incredible thing. And like that took off. It it really got quite popular among the general population in the United States. And so then there was kind of this wave of other sort of ecologically minded stories, uh, both fiction and nonfiction that were getting published by various magazines and uh, being turned into books. And I think Frank Herbert was partially writing that wave. He himself, I believe, was partially inspired by having moved to a part of Oregon where there's actually quite a bit of sand dunes. And they were trying to plant a bunch of this one kind of grass, I'm forgetting the name of it, in order to kind of root the sand dunes in place. Because, you know, they would kick up and you'd have these huge dust storms and they're really destructive. And uh, I mean, if you try to build a town too close to like a sand dune area, really the sand can't just like move in. So he also was kind of seeing the effects of human terraforming and uh, manipulation of the environment and was partially inspired by that. Yes. Sorry, that's probably enough commentary along no, those lines. No, that, that's brilliant. I had... No idea about any of this. And I was actually going to, you kind of anticipated my question, because as one of the hosts of the Future Cities podcast, you talk a lot about that relationship and how do we best kind of interact with the environments around us in a way that's healthy for for nature and also for human beings. So, no, this this was perfect. But I also wanted to ask you, so as somebody who knows this kind of science a lot, are you able to immerse yourself in the world of Dune? Or are you, is it so, you know, because this planet is fictional, it can't really exist. There's, you know, they don't really know what water is, yet there's this whole society living on this planet. Are you able to kind of let go or and get into it? Or do, are you like, oh, well, this doesn't actually make any sense? I mean, there's two levels of this. Uh, one is that I, you know, grew up just a huge fantasy and sci-fi nerd to the point where, I wouldn't read Harry Potter when everyone else uh, got into it because I read the summary of it. And I was like, this is a book about children going to school. And that is the most limited idea of what fantasy and sci-fi is. I'm not wasting my time on this. I'm not defending that opinion nowadays, but this is just letting (laughs) you know how pretentious and how into fantasy and sci-fi I was back, uh, back then. And so, like, it is pretty easy for me to immerse myself even in like bad sci-fi and bad fantasy, I've just I have the 
the mentality for it. But I mean, like Dune is is pretty richly realized. There's some stuff that probably is nonsense. I mean, they go from the sort of like grounded uh, drylands ecology kind of thinking on Dune, which is much more rooted probably in Frank Herbert's experience. And I think it shows. Um, I think he has a real appreciation for um, how life can and does adapt to these sorts of extreme dry land environments, which now that I live in Arizona and I'm going to school here at Arizona State in the middle of the Sonoran Desert, uh, I really have an appreciation for, you know, him really kind of delving down into Mm -hmm. what it takes to be a person living in the desert and Mm -hmm. like having a, a community also living in the desert. But I mean, then there's like so many just other absurd parts about this. I mean, you can't really talk about Dune without without also talking about like the colonialist elements of it, because, you know, there's like this native people there. Paul's father, Duke Leto, and Paul himself both are thinking about the native population in terms of their ability to potentially be the new army for this monarchy like the Atre- the house atreides mm-hmm. is a monarchy mm-hmm. and like they want a new army so they're trying to enlist the native people basically in a fight against like another house oh, there's so much going on in this book i mean the ecological side is cool and i really appreciate it but then also just like some of the fantasy stuff is also great it, just in terms of I think it's just very richly realized. and I really appreciate it for what it is like the giant sandworms rule. I mean, you see this in the movie, too, where like the sandworms actually end up being very cool. Like uh, they are really well realized in the book. And then in parts of the movie, when the CGI and puppets aren't totally terrible, they look really good. I still have like the adolescence fist pumping hell yeah like whenever the worms are tearing shit up <laughs> when they're on top of the worm and they're writing it in the movie <laughs> there is like a guitar electric guitar riff that gets yes. going and it was like the it made me feel so amazing watching it like i felt like i was writing that word as <laughs> like uh, i got really into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the movie soundtrack, I believe, doesn't even include uh, rock music or electronic guitars or anything up until those moments. No, they yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> They really do save it for like, all right, you are riding the worm. It is <laughs> sick as hell. And like, oh God, those scenes are so funny. Also, like this, they are just like on a green screen in the background. And, you know, writing kind of is a, a thing that looks vaguely ridged, like the worms they've been showing previously. Uh, it rules, and it's also just, like, so bad-looking. It's also flat. Like, it's a totally flat shot. You're just, like, looking at yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just looking at the characters head-on while they hold these, like, reins that go beyond the, the edges of the screen. Right. So you're just like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are parts of this that I love, and also now that I live in the desert, I'm like, hell yeah, there's worms everywhere out here. <laughs> uh, but, you know. So the worm riding... I actually wasn't too hard on it in the movie because it, it was nonsense in the book to me. So so I'm like, so this this movie did really the best it could with what it was given because they always talk about how if a worm comes up, the sand is just collapsing, right? And you're not even just running away from the worm, you're running away from the sand, like sucking you under. Yeah, yet, yep. yet suddenly you can run up right next to it and like climb up it and then like hook these things so if if it's like a ridged worm that has these like shells that you're trying to lift up to expose like the soft underside of it so the worm doesn't go back underground wouldn't you then have to lift up like 
the shells behind you like it makes it makes no sense like i can't think about it too much <laughs> so that's why i'm like the movie did okay it was fine oh yeah there are a lot of those moments where just like well you know david lynch gets a hard time for this movie but also the text itself is absurd right. <laughs> like there's so many parts about it where you're just like you know, what are you going to do? Reinvent the entire worm and anger all the nerds who have read this book? Or are you just going <laughs> to kind of go with it and be like, yeah, you know. And uh, the tool that they use in the movie where it's like a shovel with like two spikes on the sides of it where you like pry it up and it kind of wedges in there. It was believable. Like I looked at that and I was yeah. like, yeah, I get what you're doing there. <laughs> Good good job, David Lynch. So I wanted to say something about the writing of this book. And and <laughs> yes. I and then I will explain it. But let me just yes. say it Go first. for it. Uh, th this book is badly written. A and that doesn't mean that it doesn't have like a really great narrative. The world uh, building is totally on point. I'm not saying that there's not good things in this book. But I could literally go through this with like a red marker and be like too many frequent switching of points of view, really horrible exposition and explaining to me what's going on. A bad word repetition. People are never just turning around. They're always whirling around every single time Chani shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every single time Chani shows up on the page, the author has to tell me that her face is elfin. Literally every single time I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get that her face is elfin. I got it. There's also like the wrong word choice for some of the actions that are happening. Nonstop, meaningless, made up words that I refuse to keep track of. I don't know what any of them mean. And I got too angry yeah. to look them up. And then actually it took me about 100 pages to get into this book. And then I found out that the publishing house wanted to cut the first hundred pages and they actually broke with him after this one. And the sub subsequent books came out with a different publishing house because he was too, he wouldn't like change anything. It, like this book just so badly needed an editor. But if you're like a white guy in the 60s or whatever, I think you can, I guess, just do whatever you want and people will publish it. Sorry, just one clarification here. Uh, didn't, so I believe the Wikipedia says that the final publisher for it normally put out like auto repair manuals. Is Am I, did you also oh, find that information? No, I did not see that, but that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the novel Dune was finally accepted and published in August 1965 by Chilton Books, a printing house better known for publishing auto repair manuals. So, you know. <laughs> but they were the even idea. the ones who were like, no, you need to cut this, this, and this. Like, they even know what was going on. And, he, and Frank <laughs> Herbert was just like, no, I refuse. <laughs> and then once book three starts... There is like needlessly confusing timeline stuff where I was constantly skipping back pages and being confused about what was happening that there was no need to confuse me like that because book three says it's about two years later. Then they say Paul, next chapter, they say Paul is over 18 when he was 15 before. Then suddenly the sister is two years old. Next thing that happens, there's a battle where she suddenly a four-year-old demon child and i'm like where where are we what time is it i'm like why are you confusing me so much about like where we are in the timeline yeah it totally kind of breaks down toward the i mean in book three as you correctly identify and it also breaks down very clearly in the movie too but we can get into that later i wish the writing was better 
but I'm glad this was made. I'm sorry I'm hating no, on it. it <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the writing is really bad. Uh, it's also funny because I believe he was a professional writer. I think Frank Herbert was a journalist, if I'm not mistaken. So he is at least as acquainted with a certain form of writing, but it does crack me up. You know, I work with a bunch of scientists, and some of them are really into sci-fi, and some of them will fantasize about uh, trying to, like, have some kind of writing career, at least on the side or whatever. But, like, most scientists can barely write science. Uh, and, like, trying to, like, write prose, like, you know, compelling prose is incredibly difficult. And I don't think people really have the, or at least in my field, or, like, I know so many people who like sci-fi and fantasy or whatever, but just have not really thought about, like, good composition. In part, I think, because books like Dune and other ones, like The Martian as well, like, the prose is garbage. It's really bad. Yeah. Uh, and if this is, like, your inspiration, you're probably thinking, like, yeah, I can do that. Oh, but interesting. Compare this to someone like, like, Ray Bradbury is, has a lot of problems as a writer, but he, he writes really well. Like, I can go through and pick out a sentence from Ray Bradbury in any of his sci-fi novels. Like, hmm. he just has really good words is the best way I can describe it. But he's not the sort of inspiration for sci-fi that these other big authors are. And that's unfortunate. And I'm glad you pointed this out. I have dog-eared one of my pages in my book to uh, get at just how bad some of the dialogue is here. This sentence just drives me insane. Uh, where it's when they're first introducing the characters of like the Baron Harkonnen and um, the Mentat Peter. And I don't remember if anyone else is in this scene. Fade Rautha. Uh, but regardless, um, I think Peter at one point says the words, you do not drool very prettily, Baron. And like, that's supposed to be a sort of menacing sort of thing. But like, you do not drool very prettily just is a nonsense sentence because it implies that there is a way to drool in a pretty <laughs> manner. But then also prettily sucks as a word. Yeah. And I, I don't know, just like everything yeah. about it, like cut this whole sentence, like figure out what you're trying to say because that's bad like i don't know it's it's incredible it's not good <laughs> can i uh just to go back to the the scientist stuff when yeah. um so when the planetologist uh kinds or keens i don't know what his name is but when he's sure. when he's first introduced the duke says oh <laughs> he's a scientist type he's an art sort of fellow has a precise way of speaking, clipped off, no fuzzy edges, razor apt, and just that this book implies that all scientists like yeah. talk like crazy scientists. Um, as a scientist, Jason, is this true? Do they all talk <laughs> like that? <laughs> I mean, I think there are a certain there's a certain cohort among scientists who do very well because they they have that sort of uh, personality. But I think. That checks out. I mean, out I certainly then. don't talk like that. You've heard me on this podcast several times, and I ramble all the time. Uh, yes, it, it's great. I love the the very one sided personification of like what a scientist is. <laughs> also, he's an ecologist. Like ecologists are weird people, and I mean that like in a, a loving, appreciative way because I am technically an ecologist at this point. But I mean, we're not physicists, which is more what he seems to be like. Uh, okay. Conceiving us. Okay. <laughs> like anyway. Good, good characters, good characterization. I also, one of my favorite things to to do with this novel, because you were talking about how difficult the words are, 
is to get other people's interpretation of how to pronounce any of this stuff. You know, Paul takes the title of Muad'Dib, which is how I end up pronouncing it. Uh, the general native population is called the, it's written F-R-E-M-E-N, but it's very clearly supposed to be Freeman, but it's pronounced Fremen. I think. It's just obnoxious, and at least that's how though. it's also pronounced in like the movie. Sorry, you were saying. Yeah, no, sorry, but it, it's it, they're they're freemen, but they're not. Get it? <laughs> yes. And I'm like, and stop annoying the <laughs> shit out of me. <laughs> but it's interesting that you you just said Peter. I said Peter when I was reading it on the page, but in the movie they call him Piter. I mean, it's very clear that he. I'm trying to think of a, a good example of this. So, I mean, like, think of the, how the elves talk in, like, Lord of the Rings. Like, there's a proper language. They hired someone to, like, come up with a... Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, hold on. Sorry. Tolkien okay. came up with that language. It's, like, a legitimate language with grammatical rules. So... Yeah. Tolkien Sorry. is on its own... He's on his own level. I know people compare, like, this a lot to Tolkien, and I get it, because it's just, like annoying minutia that nerds love to remember and test the other nerds on and like are you a <laughs> yep. true nerd so <laughs> yep. sorry go back to what you were saying i got a little well, I, I turned into one of those nerds just now that's all oh no that's uh that's totally <laughs> legit i couldn't remember if it was more developed in the films or if it was in the books i you know have read tolkien but i'm not um the biggest tolkien head i don't think i've read like the Silmarillion or whatever, uh, and you're going to get murdered if by nerds listening to this podcast who <laughs> I've mispronounced that. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's very clear that there's not a consistency of language or grammatical structure or anything like that uh, with regard to the the Fremen or the Freemen, because all these words are just like nonsense. The Bene Gesserit presumably have their own kind of language that they speak or are borrowing words from something else because they have that one needle called the John Gabar or whatever. It's just <laughs> one of these things where it's so distracting because yeah. even like words from the same community just look like they have no relation to each other oh. at all. And then they just straight up use the word jihad to describe like the, the Fremen disposition, you know. And it's just like, all right, so you've just totally given up the fact that yes you're writing about arabs uh <laughs> or like a muslim community in general like these people are the muslims in your book well, uh, well that's another thing that really bothered me in the movie is that these people are very clearly um coded as arabs and they talks all the time how you have to be like so adapted to the desert so so all the people they were all white people being adapted to the desert is is looking like us i don't think so <laughs> Yeah, I don't do not. well in the sun. So, <laughs> yeah, that really bothered me in the movie. But it's also the eighties, and uh, only white people <laughs> exist in Hollywood. So, <laughs> right, yeah. I just have one more thing marked here. Something that really didn't age well is, I think we always make fun of like women having to be like innocent and sexy at the same time. Yeah, but mm -hmm. there's a quote here by the princess Rulan that starts off one of the chapters which is like so serious <laughs> it talks about like the Bene Gesserit and she says the Re reverend mother must combine the seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable majesty of a virgin goddess and that's how you get your power <laughs> and it's like seeing like a male writer write that in the 60s and being so <laughs> serious about it and I'm just like oh boy <laughs> just made me laugh yeah there's there's no <laughs> subtextual analysis to be done it is just explicit um yeah and speaking of gosh so i mean the the box that 
uh, Paul has to put his hand in at the very beginning is very much just a good physical grounding of the description of like who the Bene Gesserit have to be. Where like you have to put your hand in the box. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, it's like indescribable pain, but there's something that like draws you to it. And then they're holding like a poisonous uh, gom jabar, which is just a needle with some poison in it, up to your neck. Like it's very much like that whole thing just kind of sets up the sort of like Bene Gesserit allure more or less and like the, the danger hidden behind them. That, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's just incredible. You're putting mm-hmm. your hand in a box <laughs> and it's just all this subtext just made, you know, blown up to, to on a loudspeaker, you know, Oof. at 11. It's just incredible. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't age well. No. And they keep remaking it. This is part of the reason why I wanted to like uh, do this for your show. Cause it's like, I guess we're doing another movie after doing like two series, like on sci-fi and having done this original movie, for some reason we keep revisiting this text in spite of the fact that, you know, there's, I don't know, probably thousands of sci-fi novels that have been written in the period since this book first came out that are probably better than this. <laughs> Well, something that also we talked about this being about terraform, about ecology, about philosophy, what is it, you know, religious fanaticism. And then the movie's like, you know what, all these themes, throw them out the window. (laughs) I don't need any of them. This is now an action movie. Uh, (laughs) This is now, I read the book and this clearly needs to be made into a body horror action movie. That's what the people want. Yes. I'm like, what? How? Why? Yeah. I mean, it it really makes Star Wars seem much more politically subtle. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, you know, and I think it was kind of, it's just incredible. They they take all this stuff and like throw it out. And like, actually, all these people are good. When in the book, it's very like, you know, there's some tension in whether or not Paul is actually good. And I mean, we can get into the political themes of this later, but you're right. They just are like, Yep, it's uh, it's just like an action adventure. There's no tension whatsoever. I can't tell if we were ever supposed to think that Paul and his army mm. was supposed to lose because there's never really they don't build tension. There's like no shot of them like potentially on the the brink of losing during like the final battles or anything like that. They don't really have anything that they overcome. They just kind of keep kicking ass and like getting cooler. Which is it's it's like that in the book. You know, in the beginning of the book, the dad is going to die, that Paul is going to become the emperor. You get that right away. So they, they took all that, but then took out the, well, what does that mean to have the these people who are religiously tied to you and see you as this great leader? It, you Yeah, you're right. You either have to then build tension for like an action movie or you have to go with the the source material. And they tried to mesh them both together and it didn't work. I didn't even think about that until you just said that. Yeah, it's I I like I want I unfortunately did not get to go back and read the 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 third book of this novel um before this podcast because I really wanted to see if it's that much different than David Lynch's interpretation of it because I know they so David Lynch like what shot 4 hours with the film cut it down and then cut it down again to like a 2 hour ish film. And so there's potentially a lot that got left, you know, that got lost on the chopping block that maybe would have been a more interesting film. But like for the last 30, 40 minutes of the film, you're just kind of like on for the ride. There's no tension whatsoever. 
it's just like, hell yeah, they're riding the worm. Hell yeah, those worms aren't uh, responding at all to whatever the laser blasters are trying to do to them. No, they're just going to fuck that city up. And just like, it's incredible. <laughs> There's no tension whatsoever. It's just like sick scene after sick scene. And everyone's high-fiving each other. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Yes. And, I mean, like... <laughs> Uh, and then David Lynch goes above and beyond all of that, too, by adding um, Patrick Stewart holding the royal pug, who does not appear in the novel. The pug is not part of the book, if I'm not mistaken. No, yeah, it doesn't. That that uh, No, we are not going to say anything negative about that scene, because it is the <laughs> best thing to have ever happened. So let me, let me just walk yes, you please. through my personal experience okay so i'm watching this and there's all these animals in this movie again why did you read this book and go it needs more animals we need a furless cat and i just don't understand so now i'm if there's like an animal in danger in a movie i either turn off the movie or like i can't concentrate on what's happening so they have a scene of the pug just kind of in the hallway people are running around there's a battle and i'm like well, now I don't care about the battle. I just want to make sure the pug is okay. And the pug is going to get abandoned in this palace. Next yep. scene is Patrick Stewart. He's holding the pug inside his jacket. He's got a blast rifle that he's just shooting like crazy. He's screaming like, death to all the Harkonnens! And like, just runs out of there. And I'm like, yes, Patrick Stewart. Like, he saw me through this. He knew exactly what I needed. I needed that dog to be okay. And then in the screenshot that I've sent to like five people already, the pug has like the most determined look on its face like the pug is in the scene the pug is like a character actor <laughs> the oh, yeah. best trained dog um that scene is amazing uh yeah so i have you seen the godfather i tried i'm sorry i can't i tried so oh, many no, times no, it's totally fine i only really just watched the godfather maybe two years ago so there goes all my film cred but <laughs> the godfather has like one of the the greatest opening scenes in film not I've because of like the one, tension yeah. or the setup or whatever it's because marlon brando is holding this cat that oh, yeah, is yeah, yeah. desperately trying to get out of his lap and is like biting his hands and clawing at him. And the backstory on that is that he found it just like on like offsets. And I forgot the proper term for, you know, where they shoot the, the, the moving pictures, um, like on the studio lot, basically he found this cat and like was determined to bring it into the scene and use that as like a character development thing for this character. In spite of like the director getting pissed about it, in spite of like what a nightmare that was for costuming and the people who have to make sure that the shots are consistent with each other and like the cats in the same position and all of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> my, you know, so my thoughts immediately went back to the Godfather and thinking of all that. We're like, did Patrick Stewart, you know, look at this pug and was like, no, we got to include him in another scene. I got to, I want to be the hero who brings the pug out of this. <laughs> and people are like, oh, come on, Patrick Stewart. And he's like, nope, this is, oh, this is what God. I have to do. But, uh, this is my tribute to Marlon Brando. <laughs> but then the pug never comes back. I was hoping we would find out that Patrick Stewart has been taking care of it. Or no, I just, I mean, I'm sure it's living its best life, but we don't ever. Or that they've like started feeding it spice and, you know, you get like a blue <laughs> eye glow out of the pug. as like the last <laughs> ominous scene or something like, oh, no, the pug has powers too now. <laughs> that scene, though, where Patrick Stewart and... um and Paul meet each other again in the desert. I, I may have uh, cried at that. I may have felt something 
in that moment. I don't I know. mean, we all want Patrick Stewart to see us and, you know, look <laughs> extremely happy uh, to see us and, like, clasp us and, you know, give us a pat on the back and be like, I'm glad you're doing well. Like, Aww. thank you, Patrick Stewart. We all want that in our lives. It's very relatable. I want to talk about Paul. I had a lot of trouble with Paul as a character until I looked up that the point of this book was supposed to be about somebody who's this all-powerful messiah what does that mean when when we don't judge our or see clearly our religious leaders who then also have political power and sure. it, as soon as i saw that this was a commentary i was like oh like i got it because before that paul wasn't a relatable or interesting character and then when i found out that that's the point i i felt a lot better with paul and his storyline because he's his he has the personality of a wed rag. He's so yeah. boring. Once he becomes like all knowing and all powerful, he becomes even more annoying to me. Because he'll just walk into a room and be like, "Oh, from the airflow in this room, I know there's a <laughs> secret entrance over there." And I'm like, "Paul, shut the fuck up!" Like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, but the actor actually, I thought did such a great job. I loved watching him on screen. I loved his. He had really great diction and the way he was saying things. I, I really enjoyed the actor in the movie. Yes, um, he is great. And I'm blanking on his name. I have and no again, idea. Destroying any yeah. cred. I mean, he plays the main character on Twin Peaks. Uh, yes, but I never watched that show. Sorry. Uh, I only ever watched a portion of the first season. Man, I am just killing my cred uh, <laughs> through all of this. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's great. His hair is also uh, incredible. Amazing. Amazing. I, I watched it with uh, a friend and we tried to figure out if the hair was real or if there were extensions in there. I mean, the hairline is real, but it's very long and very blown out. I still maintain that it's all real. No, but it's real. my friend thinks that there's extensions in there. I don't know. No, no. We, they all had that hair. I, I don't yeah. know. I've seen pictures of like my parents during that time. They all had that hair. It is yeah. possible because everybody was doing it. Yeah, I mean, like, even when he... So he also shows up in Portlandia, and he's still got, like, a great hairline and still looks like he could grow that out if he really wanted to. <laughs> uh, it's incredible. It somehow lights and has, like, volume to it, but even in the sand, it's not, like, blowing around in his face too much. <laughs> you know, it's... You would think it'd be distracting, but it's totally not. It just, just kills in every scene. And, you know, when you're first reading this, or I think if you're an adolescent or something, you probably don't pick up on the sort of critical aspects of it. You're just like, yeah, hell yeah, sweet dude who comes down, uh, gets his army, gets to ride the worm, does all this shit that uh, women can't possibly do, which at multiple points, Frank Herbert makes very clear that like normally this is something that women can do. And then Paul does it, and not only does it, like accomplishes whatever the task is, but does it way better than any of the women in this book have ever done it, which is this, you know, kind of disgusting fantasy in general. But then like, all of these people are bad. Uh, I mean, the B'nai Gesserit are this, it's like a shadowy organization of women who are like basically doing eugenics and trying to come up with like the ultimate bloodline and kind of controlling how these houses marry each other and have their own ability to manipulate like the gender of their children. And I mean, it's just like straight up the worst 
race science stuff possible. So you should already be kind of suspect of them in spite of the fact that there's not really a lot of critical language in the book about it. You know, the the houses are all monarchies. They're coming down. They're doing colonialism, trying to just use these local people toward their own ends and so forth. Like no one in this book is good, except for arguably like the Fremen who are just trying to to liberate their planet or whatever. Yeah, but even they by the end become like these religious fanatics. Yeah, right. Uh, And that is like also especially complicated because, of course, they're supposed to be. uh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Our, our Arabs are just like, yeah, sure, maybe you could tame uh, the Orientals, but then their religious fervor is so strong that maybe, I mean, it's just like incredible. None yeah. of these people are good. And uh, Paul is especially bad. Do you know much about like the additional, like the, the books beyond this one? So I looked up, he later on becomes blind, right? And he like secludes himself from everyone and then his sister tries to take over and then there's like a feud between the Princess Arulin and Chani, where whoever gets the heir has the most power or something like that. Yeah, I, I haven't read much of the other ones too, but I've also read and heard synopses of it. But he just, you know, Paul continues to become all, you know, incredibly more powerful. And I think, I don't know if he eventually becomes a sandworm. That might be ultimately where it ends up. Who knows where they end up going with these books. I think he also loses his dick at some point and just, you know, makes a point to um, mention the fact that he no longer has a penis in in various parts in the the additional novels. It gets crazy. So he's already insufferable and (laughs) uh, he only gets worse. And then in addition to him just being like, you know, it's good that this book is supposed to be critical of these various themes. uh, But it also like. In doing, in like giving him all these powers, it, it's another thing that just totally destroys any tension whatsoever. Because it's just like, oh, okay, so he just has these abilities to tap into the mm-hmm. unseen forces, mm-hmm. you know, not only on in the immediate room, but now, like, you know, once he drinks the water of life and becomes the Quizak Hatteract. I don't know how you want to how pronounce that. How do you that. know all these names? I refuse to learn them. <laughs> Such a nerd. <laughs> He can, like, now sense movements in, like, the entire universe and so forth. And it's just like, okay, so you won. And we yeah. still have 150 right. more pages to go <laughs> right. for some reason. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and then an additional, like, five other books. It's yeah. crazy. I don't know how you write that much about this. Um, the next character I kind of had a lot to say about was the Baron. Yeah. Uh, because... As you should. <laughs> As I should. <laughs> this is one of the worst villains i've ever like not worse as in like oh he does bad things but like badly written because the markers that frank herbert uses to say like oh look how evil he is uh, again is something that really did not age well and i'm really curious to see how they would do it in the new movie because like a few scenes through i was like was frank herbert a homophobe and then i looked it up and yes he was because homosexuality in the book is used as saying, oh, don't you look how evil this character is. He's homosexual. Yes. Yeah. The fan phobia in this was another thing that drove me crazy. This is a quote from the book. Caressing his bulges. He, his fat has to be like suspended in midair. He's constantly hungry. Every single sentence ends with like, is there more food? Like, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, they. T- I think his first introduction is like his fat hand like touched a globe or something like that. Yeah, I mean they they go to so like such lengths to talk about his fatness 
where I, when I first read the book, uh, I would mentally interject or add to like the end of, you know, every sentence that the Baron says, uh, with, he said fatly, uh, <laughs> just because like, it, it's so detestable. It's like his most detestable quality about him. And it's also, so one of the chapters ends with him raping uh, an underage boy and then fantasizing about that boy being Paul, which is his grandson. And it just mm-hmm. seemed it just seemed like one of those like writing styles that's like so Game of Thrones, like, oh, ha, 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 look at how edgy I am in writing yeah. this character. I don't know <laughs> if this was like groundbreaking in the 60s, but like, oh, it just made me so mad. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know if you wanted to connect it to like the movie version of him. Oh, but, please like, go ahead. But I mean, like the David Lynch interpretation of the character is uh, both fat, check, and uh, gay, check, uh, but also has like really disgusting skin conditions. I mean, he's covered in like pustules, basically, all over his face in particular. And in the movie, they're constantly being drained by his doctor and being like taken care of, and he's like bathing in these disgusting liquids and like flying through them and so forth it's just uh, oil that... there's just a scene of him like putting his face under like oil and i'm like why is it why <laughs> why is this in here <laughs> yeah uh they really uh they went for the inspiration for this villain is that kid in second grade who sat at your table who ate glue and the erasers <laughs> off of pencils like that is the most villainous concept possible and they really leaned into it but at least in the like i thought the book was bad and then the movie's even worse than that because in <laughs> yeah. the in the book he at least is like he's kind of intelligent he has does a lot of like political maneuvering he uses the people around him and then in the movie <laughs> It's it's he's just like a clown. Yeah. Like the scene where he first flies up in the air, the whole family around him is like just in awe. Like Sting is like, "Oh my god, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen." And I'm like, "You're he's like your uncle." At one point yeah. are you like, "Yes, uncle, we know you can fly. I've seen it before." But everybody's just like, "Oh my god." Well, so one other quick thing about this, uh, and this always cracks me up. So, I mean, it's not really discussed explicitly, but it's kind of implied that he is so fat that he has been given the power to fly. No one else in this book flies. He is literally just so fat that they're like, well, he can't walk under his own power, so he just kind of flies around. Like, it's incredible. (laughs) But that poor actor is, like, barely overweight. Right? I'm like, he's not even fat. (laughs) He, He is not that rotund but i i will give david lynch credit like the i mean baron harkonnen isn't likable in general he is a monarch and he has like you know he does all this political intrigue where he's trying to get these other people killed and he's duplicitous and he's just you know like he's bad for many many other reasons and and, but like david lynch's idea of evil in some ways just like rules so much where like the scene where you're talking about where he's just like flying around and just like gleefully laughing as he gets sprayed with oil and like he delights and all of that like if he was you know if he was on the ground he would just be like 
jumping from foot to foot like an imp. His son, who is played by Sting, uh, who just at one point is like just straight up wearing very skimpy briefs at one point. I'm like, and feed Sting him, is, feed him. Oh my God, this poor man. Give him a sandwich or something. He's yeah, so Sting skinny. Is ripped and starved. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like Baron Harkonnen is just like flying around him and like basically clapping his hands together in like glee and how hot... Uh, uh, Sting is and like how much he wants to have sex with them but like just the scene of Baron Harkonnen like flying around and getting drenched by oil and like taking total glee in that I think is like a fantastic representation of just like the disgusting excess of the wealthy and powerful uh, you know if you can divorce all the other negative characteristics of him it's just like this guy sucks so badly and like this is what brings him joy <laughs> like it's it's pretty brilliant in some ways it's a lot I, I do want to get into the the body horror, because I did not do well with it. Like, oh yeah, I I don't know why everybody is constantly shiny and sweaty. I don't know if this was <laughs> like a time in Hollywood before setting spray was invented. Like, I don't know if the lights were too hot. <laughs> like, every person is oozing bodily fluids out of their skin. Like by the end of the movie, all the guild members are like oozing pus out of their heads and i'm like why since when <laughs> like there's a scene where like all the witches including the demon child is like are crying blood because yeah. paul is like drunk in the water or whatever and i'm like stop like why <laughs> why the scene with the like poor cat and the rat and i can see the cat trying to get out of those yeah. constraints like i don't know if like animal rights were protected during the making of the this movie <laughs> like why are there so many fetus shots i don't need to see the fetus all the time jason i, I totally forgot to bring up the the cat that is in like the milking cube oh and then there's just like God. the rat that is like duct taped to the side <laughs> of the cat for some reason why why <laughs> it, oh it's so good yeah i mean i don't know why lynch really went full throttle on that um but it does add a certain element of unwatchability to the film <laughs> that, <laughs> uh that is frankly impressive i mean no i'm kind of like really ripping into this movie and i want to say that david lynch does not like this film he refuses to discuss it he's like it was bad i'm sorry and i don't want to talk about that and i honestly respect that because he's not out here like jj abrams thinking he's like god or something so good good for you david lynch yeah i don't even want to like rip into him for it i mean there's there's real glimmers of brilliance in it i think some things they did really well and some of the scenes really are good they do a really good job of conveying the awe of the worms at some point like when the when the spice factory first gets devoured by the worm and that's like, like your first introduction to like the enormity and the power of them mm -hmm. i think they did uh, it was mm -hmm. a great shot uh whatever the puppets and cgi mix that they they use for that i thought was very good i think the set pieces that they build in this are generally pretty incredible like the the palace sets are you know, like all the gleaming gold on everything mm. is really impressive. Yeah. Um, it's all very sharp. So there's like elements of danger to it as well. I think it like communicates some really cool stuff. But then there's just so many like unforgivable and bad <laughs> elements to it. Where like, if you had tried to watch this movie without having read anything in the book, 
in a theater, you paid money for this. Would you feel anything but like outrage? Even if you like went back and read the book and like later kind of appreciated it, I would just be like, what is happening? Like they spend so much time on like the first hundred pages of the book, like basically an hour and 15 minutes. And then the rest of the book, which is like 300 or 400 pages, depending on the edition you're using is just jammed in there. Yeah. And cut in strange ways they totally mess up the the plot not that it was that cohesive in the later elements anyway just incredible but you know respect to david lynch for the good parts and then also mad respect to him for being like uh yeah no my bad it was a big yeah. steaming pile <laughs> and uh i might have been a little high on my own supply at that point <laughs> I, this must have also been like to to show that you have like made it in Hollywood, I think is measured by how many like electronic puppets are in your movie. Cause, sure, because there are characters in this that are like weird alien creatures that were not alien creatures in the book, or there's no reason for them to be there. It's just like, well, we have the money for this like whatever it is, and we need to put it in here. So maybe as a movie watcher in the 80s, I'm like, oh, my God, they have a lot of little gremlins in here. Maybe I would be <laughs> in awe of this movie. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Maybe maybe there is something awesome about it. But, oh, man, some of the shots, I mean, even consecutive shots of, like, the worms. It's like, no, the last one was so good. Why is this one so bad? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you what you thought of the special effects for the shields that they use in the yeah. movie. I'm glad uh, you brought this up. I don't think it can be... I don't think you can talk about Dune without talking about that. What the <laughs> hell? I loved it, but it was also giving me a headache because it's, like, yes. it's like a blurred filter and then there's a lot of really quick action so you really don't see what's happening. Like, the stunt choreographer is like, why did you hire me? Because you can't even see what I, what I did? <laughs> 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 oh god yeah so to like describe what the the shields are i mean okay so i i wish i had like written down a description or description of what the shields are like in the book because to me the shields basically adhere to your skin or something like that i didn't get the impression that they really projected outward from the body necessarily did you no no yeah so like in the movie basically Think of yourself, you know, as a normal human, and then your shield is like someone made a Minecraft version of you, <laughs> and, like, you're wearing that. Like, that is what it is. It's, like, extremely blocky, uh, except also the Minecraft version of you is smoked glass. I mean, the descriptions are very different between what you see on the screen and what's seen in the book. But, like, the movie is, like... I don't know. It looks like garbage at some in some ways, but I also in some ways thought like the interpretation was super cool and like probably very cutting edge at the time. Right. And it's like a very radical vision of what the shields <laughs> could be where I like I appreciated the risk that he took on that, you know, even though there's so many other questionable elements of it. It was just <laughs> like, huh, I don't know that I would have had the confidence to see that through. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about the guild scene in the very beginning. So the guild members like come to the emperor and he's like, they're like, you have to bring us the spice or whatever. And the guild member, there's like that alien creature in like a tank 
Yeah, that's, that's the emperor. Yeah, that's right. All, no, no, no. They're talking to the emperor. And oh, the, okay. the alien creature is like the guild master, and it's disgusting because, yeah. of course, everything in this movie has to be disgusting. <laughs> but the tank that it's in is like leaking water, and there's yes. just two guys with like steam mops or like vacuums <laughs> in the background of this like intense scene. Oh, it's just incredible. They're just. I'm really glad you brought this up because <laughs> I loved this a lot. Uh, number one, like the the tank that they're brought in it is like cool in general. Like it's huge and it houses, I mean, the alien inside of it is, I mean, a lot, another interesting and daring decision by David Lynch that I certainly <laughs> don't know that I would have the, the ability to be like, everyone calm down. It's going to look great. Uh, this is a good idea. Um, <laughs> But the tank itself is like a cool idea. But the two people with the the steam vacs oh are so funny because, like, <laughs> yeah, the tank comes in with and there's like you know his coterie of people who are opening the doors, and then like two guys who are you know running the the dry vacs basically to, to suck up the water. <laughs> but they do a totally inadequate job of it as he's leaving. Yeah, you know yeah, the co the two yeah. guys with the things like do these two little stripes but 90% of that area is still just soaked with whatever fluids that tank is producing and okay. they're just like you know later you'll do the rest in in <laughs> in their defense they were trying to suck it up before but everybody's just standing around not moving out of the way for these like poor workers and then those hoses are obviously hooked up to the tank and the tank is leaving and these guys yeah. are trying their hardest Jason to do the job that they were hired for how dare you Oh <laughs> uh, it rules I mean I there's so many moments where, like, I'm not supposed to be laughing about this, but just, like, what a totally <laughs> inadequate job and, like, what a half-assed, like, measure by this alien creature to be like, we'll clean it up a little. <laughs> like, I recognize that it's kind of a burden to have me over as a guest, but I'm not going to do it all. Like, some of that's on you. Good luck. You talked about them spending so much time on the beginning of this book. There yeah. is a space travel scene that is two minutes long. I timed it. It is two minutes of of screensaver graphics. Uh, there's nothing else going on. It's just... I'm like, how did you have time for this? Also, um, the beginning of this movie starts with an exposition dump by Princess Aurelian, who, like, somebody figured out on Photoshop they can make her fade in and out of the screen. So they that's just what's happening. Like, her face yep. is just fading in and out. She has this whole monologue in the beginning, and then her only line in the movie is, Father! Which I find very funny. <laughs> then, then the next scene is more exposition about the planets, explaining the planets. Then it's political exposition, explaining the houses. Then we cut to Paul looking at his computer with more exposition about what's yep. happening. And this has to be the worst start to a movie I have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, so imagine the scene in Star Wars where, like, Obi-Wan and Luke are kind of going over Princess Leia's message and then just expand that to, like, an hour. <laughs> an like, hour. no one really moves out of that space. <laughs> They're just kind of telling you about all this stuff. Oh, it's God. And, like, it, that's also what's so funny about, like, the end of it because so little of it really circles back around to all of this stuff that they're setting up 
I, I don't know. They like they don't do enough world building at the end of this film, certainly to to really make it pay off. There's no tension. There's nothing. You're just like, okay, I, now I know a lot about this world, and very little of it was actually used. How much really needs to be explained? It's like yeah, you know, these two houses hate each other. Yeah, uh, one's trying to like kill the other one because there's this. You know, the spice melange is what everyone needs, and it's very precious and all of that. And, you know, I don't know. It's just incredible. Well, and also, the again, the ecological themes of this book, I think it's not until a thousand years later that they can finally make this planet somewhat sustainable and rich in water. Yet at the end of this movie, Paul just makes it rain, like like Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's where the movie ends. <laughs> it's like, well, problem yep. solved. We did it. <laughs> Yeah, just straight up, uh, yep, I, I don't know <laughs> what else to say about it. They just totally ruined their own setups and things like that. I guess that's a display of his awesome power or whatever, but they've just spent so many pages in this book being like, well, okay, so he's all-powerful. It's like, all right, so there's no what's on the line anymore. Yeah. I don't understand. And also something that I that got annoying over time because in the book people kept not understanding what water was and i think the author kept trying to remind us of that but like by the fifth time that they're like what's rain <laughs> water from the sky i'm like okay i get it like it's a it's a desert planet uh, they cut all of that out from the movie which i like the, those scenes where like somebody cries and it's such a they're so awestruck because somebody's like wasting water by crying yes. and like what's a boat like and paul has to explain it none of that is in the movie and also the the outfits because it's a movie and you have to show the actors faces nobody's really covered for the desert you know nobody's really i didn't feel like in the desert setting so at the end when it's finally raining i didn't i didn't feel like a big thing because it wasn't really demonstrated to me enough that to these people what what is the value of water yeah, like how rare it is on the planet. They really just kind of go over it with like, well, you have the still suit. But I mean, there's a million small ways that they they talk in the book about how water is precious. Like I forgot the the first like Fremen who's explaining the importance of the Chris knife or whatever. And he spits on the table. And of course, to like Paul and the Atreides, that's like a sign of disrespect to spit. But, you know, to the Fremen, because water is so rare. They're oh, like, oh, my yeah, God, yeah. he expended some water. And you also need to expend some water to to tighten this pact yeah. or whatever. It doesn't exist in the film. It's just <laughs> totally, yeah. totally bowled over. Well, and I thought the um, the costumes were another one of those things because you were talking about the sets. The only thing that didn't really check out for me was that still suit because why would it be black in the desert, especially if they're constantly trying to to fit in, you know? Yes. That, that was the only choice that I thought was very strange. But if you look at some of the, like the Bene uh, Gesserit outfits are, are so incredibly detailed. There's so many patterns on that uniform. The costumes that the Princess Arulin wears, they're all like black and white and they're these like lush, like... I don't know, Renaissance, like, gowns. I'm like, yeah, wow, yep. that is some really cool stuff. Like, there, there's some definite talent and skill that worked in this movie. For sure. Uh, just another quick note about the still suits. Uh, they go over this in the film because, you know, it's like, let's wow the people in the audience with the cool technology of these just, like, you know, kind of dull black suits that they're wearing. Uh, and they make sure that the audience knows that they are pooping and peeing into their suits and the suits are storing them around the thigh area. So for every scene beyond that explanation, just imagine that there's poo 
just kind of circulating around the thigh area of everyone as they're running around. I don't know. That just yeah. like cracks me up. Yeah. We're just like, is it? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't even remember the book talking about like, yeah, no one can poo. They just poo into this suit and then like a no, compost hole no, in think, there. I think they do, but it really makes no sense because the suit is like so tight to your skin. Like, <laughs> yes. no, it makes, it makes no sense. <laughs> okay, I have to I have to talk about the whispering. This half <laughs> Yes, okay, let's do it. Half of this movie is just whispering, which drives me a little crazy. Like if I listen to too much whispering, I kind of get this like crawling under my skin feeling. And yeah, some it's asthma. It's, oh, <laughs> well, no, no, no. I I watch a lot of ASMR, but I don't watch a lot of the whispered ones cuz I'm like just Speak up. A lot of the whispering was just either exposition or it was just repeating the previous line. So an actor like said something and then another actor thought that in his mind. And I'm like, yes, I just heard it. Why are you why are you repeating it to me in voiceover? <laughs> because many books have been made into movies and they've all managed to figure out how to translate inner thoughts into like a film. Yeah, so I guess the the critical thing about this book is that the the narrating style is like they're constantly going in the heads of all the characters and you know, you get kind of the the thought process of each of them. And the movie just decides to do exactly that. They literally just have the voices that yeah. kind of play. Yep. Um and you're supposed to, because the lips aren't moving on these people on screen, you're supposed to recognize that they are saying this in their head. It's set at a quiet volume and it like completely takes you out of the scene. I don't oh, know. You feel, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel very much like the narrator. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never seen the sort of like narrator option done like that in a film. Sorry. There's a reason why we have not seen that <laughs> because yes, it doesn't yes. work. <laughs> this is the, the object lesson that every other director saw and was like, okay, I will not do that. <laughs> and we haven't seen it since. And now we know that the solution is to shoot it like the office where each of the characters are like pulled aside. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, like April Ludgate, where they just kind of like look at the screen with like, you know, this is happening uh, kind of eyes. You know, they could have reshot the whole film like that. I'm looking forward to the 2020 remake where they just do that. Um, I wanted to say something about the fight choreography because it's just people lifting up their hands and then some people are on, on zip lines flying around. And I, I kind about of... The weirding ways. The weirding ways and also the scene in the beginning, because it's so campy that, like, I love it. And I'm not saying that in an ironic way. I'm just like, this is where we were. I can kind of get into it and I like it. And I don't know. It's like charming almost. They really don't do too much in terms of fighting that really makes it seem like the abilities that the Bene Gesserit have or that Paul has with the weirding ways are that impressive because like when he fights the baron harkonnen's son is that fade ralph i forget who i think so um, when he fights so, sting yeah uh, sting you know really gets close to killing him and this is when paul is like at his maximum powers or whatever and after he's trained his whole army and that's like why they're so effective at it it's just like this guy has done nothing all movie except just like flex in his underwear <laughs> and he like almost takes down paul it's, yeah the, the fighting is just like totally mystifying. Yeah. Also, they they go through that awesome scene where uh, there's the obelisk or whatever, and for some reason, the weirding ways and like the the killing word 
allows you to to shoot an obelisk apart with like one blast or something like that. It's I looked that up because um the, so David Lynch didn't want to do like fighting choreography like in the desert and on the sand. So he came up sure. with these like modules that just project your voice. But that yeah. scene that you just mentioned of the of the stone just like shattering and flying everywhere and half of the room is now blind because they have shards of rock in their eyes. Yes. Yep. It's supposed to be super cool, but I'm watching that and I'm like, this is this an OSHA violation? Like <laughs> is this like safe workplace? Uh, I'm like, yeah, Paul, I, come on. <laughs> I don't see the PPE on all these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the fighting it's like, you know, the first Star Wars or whatever, where they just have like two people kind of awkwardly swinging around a sword before they really thought about like, well, maybe we should call someone who has any idea of what to do with a sword. You're not really supposed to focus on the the choreography so much as like the emotion or whatever behind it. Huh. And on some level, I appreciate that. But also now that we're like so saturated with choreographed fight scenes where they have hired people to do this, it's very noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just keep going through so many notes. Just interrupt me if you <laughs> have anything no, else you, to you say. You keep hitting all my favorite things. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just so glad we talked about the, the, the two guys who are running the drive act uh, <laughs> do a totally... <laughs> shit job of it is that's the funniest thing in the movie to me um so the scene where sean young appears and introduces herself to paul she does some of the worst acting i've ever seen because she just keeps lifting her eyebrows like you have to go back if you ever <laughs> watch that and, and she's been she was in blade runner two years before this same with lady jessica who's just like hysterical and like not strong at all even though she's probably the strongest character in the book so things of like that make me wonder is this just the direction because i've seen both of these actresses in other things and they're fantastic like something just must have gone wrong because like it's not yeah and it's also kind of inconsistent i mean i guess jessica does kind of go back and forth between this but i mean the benet jesuit are supposed to be very staid very considerate of their motions and yeah. their outward emotional displays because they're not trying to let on and they're always trying to manage for the emotions and perceptions of other people. And no, they, they do not do that <laughs> at all in the film. That is not communicated one bit, except for probably some expository element. Like I must not betray my inner feelings or something like that. But that's pretty much it. And this was the character where I was like, oh, wow, they they really let this character down. Because especially when she says like, oh, I will teach you this way of fighting. And then that scene never happens. Paul is the one teaching them how to fight. You know, yep. Jessica is such an incredible character, probably my favorite character in the book. And she's just kind of dropped. And I was looking at the crew for the 2020 version because it's the same director who did uh, Blade Run the new Blade Runner. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the female representation in that movie was a little bit archaic too. Like it was not the best I've yeah. ever seen. So that, and and the, all the writers are male. Like most of the crew is male, and it doesn't give me like a really good feeling of them doing that character justice this year with the new movie coming out. I'm kind of like iffy about that. I mean, there's so many things that I'm iffy about because I mean, this is a very Orientalist novel to begin with. And for some reason, we keep remaking it in spite of the fact that we have thoroughly critiqued Orientalism. And then there's all the weird sexist things. We're like, so Jessica gives birth to, to Paul in the first place because she loves her husband so much. In spite of the fact that it's like totally against 
B'nai Gesserit's protocol, and she was specifically instructed to give birth only to girl children. And But, you know, she's so enamored with her husband, and he really wants it. So why not just throw out thousands of years of bloodline preparation or whatever? There's just all this weird stuff. But then I'm I'm so cautious about what this next movie is going to be like. I forgot the name of the director, but I saw Blade Runner 2049 or 2040. I forget what it was mm-hmm. actually called. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like, okay, for the most part. But the sets were great. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sets and the colors, like all of the palettes that they chose. I mean, just in terms of world building, I am very interested. But in terms of literally every element otherwise, I don't know what story like you want to end up telling with this. Okay, so like, let's say we have a more racially diverse cast of Atreides uh, or whatever. That doesn't make the like enslavement of the middle eastern population or like the the thinly veiled muslim population on this planet like any better like what is the what is the modern element they're gonna like try to tie in with this yeah. i like have tried to think like are they gonna use this as a critique of the war on terror and like our sort of hubris with being like yeah we'll just empower the afghanis or whatever and then it goes bad but like the message of the book is that they're too much of religious fanatics and that is ultimately their downfall. And that is a terrible message to have uh, in the modern day. And I, I just don't know where they're going to go with the sort of political elements of this. Yeah, I was looking at um, Duncan Idaho, which is, I think, a really great yeah. character. And I get, I'm really upset that he just gets killed off. I don't like a lot of character deaths. And that's probably just like a reflex muscle I've developed after breaking up with Game of Thrones. Because... I would always rather choose character development over introducing a character to me and then getting rid of that character. I find that a little bit pointless. But sure. Duncan Idaho is specifically um, described as a person of color in the book. He's a white guy in the movie, of course, because, uh, again, of course, it's the 80s. Um, but Jason Momoa is playing that character uh, in the new one. So I was, okay. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that and, the like, more racially diverse cast but then again what you said how what is that yeah it's tough (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the the one good thing is of course that the atreides even though they're kind of the the protagonists of the film are definitely not good in a lot of ways is i think where you can kind of potentially get in a useful message or something along you know something closer to a proper political message that you can you know, that is valid or is worth making and that isn't just like horribly racist and so forth. I mean, I'm so every time I've seen a movie or a sci-fi thing like Star Trek two tried to wrangle with our legacy in the Middle East and totally messed it up. I mean, yeah. it was literally just about like, well, like I forget um, all the different characters in it, but it was literally just about like, well, what do you do with all the people who are radicalized as a result of this war that just had, you know, tons of civilian casualties and stuff like that. And there's terrorists or like a, a villain that has come out of this and like where is your responsibility in this what do you, how do you actually respond to it and then like the the last 60 minutes of the film basically they totally throw out all of that sort of like world building out the door and it just becomes like a, a universal studios ride or something like that we're just like writing through all these set pieces and cgi and so yeah. forth yeah. so i just i have no confidence in the ability of Hollywood to like tell a good or useful story about lessons we should learn from our military adventurism and like the Middle East and so forth. But hey, maybe I'll be surprised. No, that's uh, that's really good insight. I would 
totally agree with that definitely um but then also the other thing that you said about the the settings in the world of Blade Runner like I when I watched the new one I was back there I was like wow somebody actually kind of was able to recreate that and it was so it was such a beautiful movie to look at and I think that he's going to do a really good job with with Dune because for example Harkonnen and Kaladin in in this movie were so dark and I didn't quite understand why like everything was yeah. always like shot in this really dark way. It was always nighttime. When especially Kaladin, I imagine these like, you know, just boats on a river and this like rainforest setting and like these I don't know tropical birds and yeah, it's like an oceanic planet. Yeah. So I I I hope that they do a really cool little thing with that. But again, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the aesthetics of this film are going to be uh, very cool. And Blade Runner twenty forty nine. There's a huge set piece they have with this like building that's being basically swallowed up by the sand so like i already trust uh this director's ability to kind of produce a sort of desert world structure in a lot of ways and i'm curious how he's going to keep evolving it and kind of tie it to the the dune universe He, he seems like a great world builder and dune if nothing else is full of pretty rich details about how the world functions and how it looks even if sometimes they're contradictory or kind of nonsensical but it's there. There's like a it's a rich text for a yeah. lot of this um, to kind of certainly get a, a basis for for a really cool piece. Well, you know what I thought was actually a really cool scene as well. in this one is when Paul and Jessica are in the desert and they walk around this rock. And as they walk around, you see all the Fremen like standing right there. And then there's like a lightning. I don't know if you yeah. remember that, but I was like, oh, that's I wish there was more of that. Like that was yeah. a really cool. Like, oh, my God, there they are kind of moment yeah i mean there's so much potential here and david lynch did a a decent job with a lot of it and i think his embellishments and his own creations on some of it were just really cool in in some ways so there's a lot of good a lot of bad so thumbs up or thumbs down on this in general did you enjoy it i mean how do you even rate something like this okay 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 i'm not gonna say it's a good movie but whether i like a movie is different from it ah, being a good movie I don't, does that make sense yeah. like you could yeah. never say like this was a good movie i don't i don't think as a critical human being with yeah. a brain like <laughs> um but yeah i definitely did enjoy parts of it i think what just took me out of it was the body horror and just some of the performances just also being so clownish um yeah especially the harkonnens um i'm thinking here also of the the nephews and then also Peter DeVries, which that actor just had like crazy facial hair and like it was yes. so extra all the time. His eyes were always popping out of his head. And I'm like, that, that's not a marker anymore for somebody being evil. It's just, I think you watch that nowadays and you're just like, oh, that's a little embarrassing and ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree. Like given things like good or bad as kind of an arbitrary thing. I think there's a lot of compelling moments and compelling ideas in some of this, which is probably part of the reason that Dune has some shelf life, but probably also a good chunk of it is that people don't actually read books. <laughs> I say that, uh, right. I guess, probably a bit stuck up, but it's also true. This book is a tough one to get through. Yeah, but a it's... lot of people read it, uh, yeah. and it's already in the culture, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's true. Um, you know who's not in the culture? Patrick Stewart. I have this hilarious story about him, which I don't know if you found out in your research. Um, so they shoot this in Mexico. 
people in Mexico City are like going bananas because Sting is coming to town. Patrick <laughs> Patrick Stewart has no idea who Sting is. Never heard of him. They shoot their first scene together, and he's like, "Oh, I heard you're a musician. What instrument do you play?" And <laughs> Patrick Stewart, being deeply uncool, is uh, so relatable, and I think it's why we love him so much. <laughs> <laughs> I can. Oh my god, that rules. That's so good. <laughs> That was my last note. I think that was everything we had. Um, oh, I couldn't believe that Toto did the music for this. I kept looking up yeah. if that was a joke, but it's not. I was pretty impressed because the music rules. Yeah, I mean, the music is the, the soundtrack is very good for the most part. I, I hate any sort of rock that is constructed for film or theater, for that matter. Yeah. I always just think it sounds like a, a bad parody of rock, yeah. which is my only criticism of it. But, you know, for the film, it works. It does what it you know it's supposed to do it's not but it's not even that rocky at times like sometimes yeah. it's just kind of like these atmospheric yeah I, I don't know i thought there was a real nuance to this that made it all kind of work together yeah it was supposed to be a soundtrack and not like you know uh unlike a star is born where there's like the rock song oh, that they have right, to play right, right. yeah and it's just like big and dumb and it sucks it's real bad um it's definitely <laughs> supposed to be like an atmospheric piece in the same way that uh, you know, all other orchestral pieces and, and this are, are meant to be. I didn't know we were coming after A Star is Born uh, in oh, this man. episode. I can go after that one, but uh, we'll save that. <laughs> all right. Anything else that you had to say about Dune? Nope. Nothing that we haven't really already said. Uh, David Lynch is a strange fellow, and I really appreciated his vision on this. I don't think he had anything else that really compares yeah to some like a project like this so yeah. and it's impressive on its own ways but i also am just so confused by why the culture keeps propagating this Dude. book yeah in particular there's so many problems with it and bringing it into the modern era is very suspicious but we'll see uh what they manage to do with it jason thanks for coming back on the podcast tell the people where they can find you tell them about future cities Oh, yeah. Uh, I am also a co-host of the Future Cities podcast, which you can get on Stitcher or iTunes. And I think we're on Spotify as well. So pretty much where all podcasts are sold, um, you can find us. It's about urban ecology and making cities more resilient to climate change and extreme weather events, which is what I do professionally. So it's real science, not this. Uh, yes. I mean, yes, sure. <laughs> It's all very, I mean, what is science? It's, it's mostly papers. It's a lot of theoretical stuff. <laughs> so is it really any more real? I mean, this has set pieces. They're constructing stuff. I haven't built anything. <laughs> but thank you again so much. And I hope you yeah. stay safe and healthy out there in this crazy yeah. time. You yeah. stay safe too. Bye, Tabea. Wizards had a rat.